The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Good evening, Grace Bible Church and Friends of Grace. So this last Sunday, we covered 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And as we worked through this final portion of uh, chapter 2, I spent well over half of our time uh, focusing on the matter of the false teacher's apostasy. Um, They're having rejected the truths of the gospel and the lordship of Christ. And this was in part because I see this as one of the most defining and uh, clarifying elements in terms of why they are who they are and why they do what they do, because they are apostate false teachers. So I think it's a good, helpful foundation, even at the end here, to understand their the outworking of their character and actions that we've worked through throughout chapter 2, as well as in other places in the scriptures that you encounter like things. But another reason was that the language that's used to express their apostasy is a language that is uh, so intimately familiar to us, as it's effectively the language that Peter's also used of the genuine believer. So I viewed this as a matter of first importance to us, and I wanted to make clear that for the apostate false teacher, there's nothing that has fundamentally changed. It's not that they were in Christ and really one of us, and now, well, something tragic has happened, and they're not with us. They're not with us because they never were truly of us. And still, though, this language can be challenging because um, the, the nature of its association with genuine believers, and then you couple that with the experience of the false teachers, is that they're intimately part of the local church context. That's that's the nature of their work and their their destructive practices is proximity to the church. So there's so there's proximity, there's relationships, there's apparent good works that aren't really what they appear to be. And now Peter is using a Uh, similarity in language and expression to speak of them. And so there's some challenges there. And um, we we walk through... um, Good evening, Grace Bible Church and Friends of Grace. Um, this last Sunday, we worked through 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And as we worked through this final portion of chapter 2, I spent really well over half of our ter- uh, time uh, unpacking the um, nature of the false teacher's apostasy. And there were reasons for that. I wanted to, to explore more fully the nature of their rejecting the truth of the gospel and the rejection of the Lordship of Christ because I think those are some of the most revealing elements in terms of the character and conduct of the false teacher. So all that we've worked through as we've um, pressed through chapter 2 and, and had to work through the, the dark, uh, gross nature of their conduct and their impact in the church, I think it really finds its resolution in terms of the why element here because they're apostate false teachers. 
And so it's a very challenging thing, um, but I think it's a very helpful exercise. So again, that was where a lot of our attention went on Sunday. But another reason that I wanted to give it so much attention on Sunday and in view of our passage that we were working through is that the language that's used to express their apostasy is a language that's intensely familiar to us. It's as it's effectively the language that Peter's also used of the genuine believer. So I viewed this as a matter of, of first importance because, again, as we'll see in just a moment and as we work through on Sunday, he's using language that he's used for the believer, for the genuine believer, and he's using it in a like but different way toward the apostate false teacher. And so it presents some challenges for us. Uh, it presents, uh, it reawakens those concerns. Were they really part of the church? Were they really identified with Christ in a, in a sincere way? And the answer remains no. No, they were perhaps in close proximity, perhaps even knit into the body life because of deception, but they were never genuinely in Christ because they never, ever were. Still, again, the language is, is challenging. And so we see in chapter 1 of Second Peter, verses 3 to 4, similar things that he's going to replicate in terms of uh, theme and language and development in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. So uh, part of our passage that we focused on on Sunday. So I went ahead and front-loaded, addressed it, because I think it's helpful as a foundation. So what are some of the similarities? Well, chapter 1, verse 3, through the full knowledge of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. And then for the apostate false teachers, he says, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in chapter 2, verse 20, and then chapter 2, verse 21, having known the way of righteousness. And so, again, you can see this very clear overlap in language. And Peter's using the language of our hope and our identity to express the hopelessness of the apostate false teacher and to give clarity to the nature of their identity and its outworkings in their conduct as well. So, as we develop this matter, um, again, I directed you back to some prior references, and that included um, the conclusion that we were, uh, the, I think that, that fed and directed us to the conclusion that we reached here in 20 and 21. But at the very introduction of our engagement of the false teachers in chapter 2, you remember we, we talked about uh, they're denying the master who bought them. That language was hard. It was hard to work through then. It's still something hard to get our hands around, but it gave us a clue into the, the apostate nature of these false teachers. And I believe we even had an allusion to the dangers of this path as far back as chapter 1, while we were warned that there are those who will not obediently supply their faith with these things. Remember, these things was a major point of emphasis in the, the uh, all throughout first cha chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and he, he provides the list of these things, and then he refers back to these things a number of times. So these things being supply your faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. And again, um, these persons um, who fail to do that, they're not necessarily apostates or apostate false teachers, but they put themselves in a compromised and really dangerous trajectory. Because Peter writes in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, For in whom these things, these list of things, they're not supplying their faith with these things, is not present or not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. So again, it's not that, wow, if you fail to do these things, 
you're inevitably going to become an apostate. You're going to leave the faith. You're going to abandon the faith. You're going to be found out to have never truly been in Christ. Well, it is cause for great concern, and you don't have the assurances, and you don't have the the blessings of growth and maturity that are expected for those who are in Christ. So definitely pause for concern and definitely pause for uh, uh, considering one's standing. But it doesn't mean it's inevitable. The connection I want to make is that there's a trajectory. Peter's already talked about the, the blessed foundation of our salvation in chapter 1. But there are those who aren't going to take proper and full advantage of it. And then in chapter 2, we have those who have outright denied it. And so that was the point of connection I wanted to make, that we've been building toward this in, in various ways. But again, the language overlap with chapter 1, uh, verses, I believe, 3 and 4, and now um, 20 and 21, it, it really complicates things in some ways. Not necessarily, but at face value, it can complicate things and it can... Uh, producing us a measure of uh, anxiety. We already are concerned there. There are those who were in the church body and now the language is so similar. So what would be a way to maybe um, get our hands around it? Something that we do understand, at least in part, that we can tie to this to give us a, be a measure of a uh, point of relation. And so that end, we talked about three different options and I'm not going to explore them um, really fully at this time. I just want to draw them to your attention. We addressed them in our message on Sunday, but uh, option one was the failed seeds of the parable of the sower and the seeds, those who appeared to come to genuine faith and to, to sprout and have life and obviously didn't endure. Then we, we ruled those out. Then we had the religious leaders that opposed Jesus's public ministry. And I, I know they're a bit of an obvious rule out, but by way of comparison, holy, uh, appearing to be holy men, appearing to be religious, certainly knew the scriptures, but their outright rejection of Jesus and their outright rejection of the gospel would obviously be a, a more direct rule out for them as well as far as a point of relation. And that leaves us with option three, the, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, namely Judas Iscariot. And with him, uh, we have, I'd argue, a very clear point of relation um, between the future and uh, now present false teachers. And part of that point of relation Peter makes for us back in Acts chapter 1 when they were replacing Judas. Remember what he said about him, that such was the nature of his proximity and identity with the apostles that Peter says in Acts chapter 1 verse 17 regarding Judas was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And so again, we, we have a, a man who walked with Jesus knew Jesus more intimately and closely than almost anybody in history in terms of the public incarnate ministry of Jesus. He was part of something utterly unique. He saw, he heard, he participated, taught, likely performed uh, miraculous signs and wonders and, and as much as any of the apostles did during their, their being dispatched out to, to declare the hope of the kingdom. And so we have somebody that by all accounts looked the part, and to the point where even Jesus brings up that one of you will reject me, they don't all say, ah, oh, Judas, we knew it was Judas. Rather, is it, is it me, Lord? And so it wasn't clear until, it was clear, it wasn't clear until things had been uh, made plain to them. And that's the nature of the false teacher as well, that like Judas, the deception can be very hard to see through at least initially, but then when you peel back the true character and the conduct of the false, uh, the apostate false teacher, it does become quite plain. And we know that because we're at verse 17 through 22, but we look back to 1 through 16 of Second Peter chapter 2, and we have a, 
a pretty comprehensive list uh, expressing the character and conduct of the false teacher, and it's it's terrible. It's terrible. So we can give just a few samplings. I've provided a fuller list on the screen, and we worked through them on Sunday, but they secretly introduce destructive heresies. Um, they cause the way of the truth to be maligned. They despise authority. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They entice unstable souls. They forsake the right way, having gone astray. These are things that are quite obvious. They're not in Christ. They never were. But it's not necessarily obvious in the moment. Now, sometimes in contemporary contexts, the false teachers are so emboldened and so um, empowered by weak and carnal people, um, and even sometimes weak and carnal believers, that uh, I hope they grow out of that. I hope the Lord rescues them out of it. I would otherwise worry for their souls. But they can be more bold, more overt in their approach. But often, it's not so bold, it's not so clear, until you peel it back, and then the character and conduct is, is, is rather plain that you can see that, no, they're not in Christ, and they never were. So we worked through that list of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-16, through 16, and saw from what we had already covered that it was, it was, again, quite clear. These persons were never truly in Christ. And then having established that necessary foundation in terms of understanding the apostasy of the false teachers, we then were prepared to work through the elements of this final section, verses 17 to 22 itself. And there we first observed the false teachers empty, they're useless, waterless springs and mist driven by violent storms. And again, empty, useless, not fulfilling their purpose and intent, which you would expect of them, what would, what would be reasonable expectations of, of teachers and leaders in Christ's church. And that's because they're neither true teachers nor true leaders of God's people. And we also observe that they are kept. They're kept for judgment. And it's a terrible judgment having been reserved for them, an utter darkness. And with this, we noted that Peter's spoken to God-keeping a few prior times as well. Now, in a positive sense, Believers are kept. Believers are kept in a very different way. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we read that to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept or reserved for you in heaven. And so first Peter 1 through 4, or excuse me, 1 Peter 1, 4, uh, we see that we have an eternal inheritance that's being kept reserved for us in heaven by God. So it's a sure keeping by God, a promised keeping. And then in earlier in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, so going further than 1 Peter, but back in our study in 2 Peter chapter 2, we have a context of judgment where we're reminded that the uniquely offensive fallen angels, those who sinned in, in specifically uh, perverse ways before the Noahic flood, that they also were reserved and kept, but them for judgment. For thousands of years now, they've been reserved and kept for judgment, bound for future judgment. Now, in a manner that more closely associates with fallen angels rather than believers, you have the apostate false teachers who it says they are being kept, they are being reserved for their own final and terrible judgment. A judgment that, really, it's common for those who reject Christ's unbelief in one regard. It's more pronounced and fitting for these offenders who are known for what? They're known for their proximity within the church. They're known for... Uh, deceptively assuming roles of, of leadership and identity. To what end? Well, we see that they, they go after the, the abuse, the weak, and the vulnerable, uh, including new and young believers, immature believers, as I mentioned. Some context, I'm puzzled. I don't know. We can't see the heart. We don't know who's in Christ necessarily. And 
We can only evaluate what we can. But there are young and immature believers who are going to struggle more severely, especially those who have been uh, rescued, delivered from a range of carnal sins only a brief time before this. And they, they go after them and try to snatch them up. They're deceiving others as well. But the fact that they're going after Christ's people is particularly offensive. And they appear to be promoting a, a distorted expression of grace. Um, a distorted expression of grace that uh, would serve as a covering for false and carnal freedom, which is really no freedom at all. Ultimately, they're offering a profane version of freedom of which they are truly slaves to themselves. So the irony is, and the wicked irony, is that they promote a freedom that's enslaving them and enslaving others as well. We see abuses here of Romans 6 and um, Galatians 5 where Paul's making an argument to the contrary, but it almost like they turned his argument and, and distorted it, as it were. Yes, let's sin that grace may abound. And, Let's all do this. Let just We're doing this under the guise of love. What a distortion. But such is the nature and the character and conduct of the false teacher. They distort truth. And this is of no surprise as we only take a peek back and how they've already been described throughout this chapter in terms of why, uh, why can we say that they do these things. We'll just look back. Uh, we can see a few things here. We can highlight leading others away by their sensuality, maligning the truth, going after strange flesh, despising authority, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls. This is their modus operandi. This is who they are, and this is what they do. And this all appears to be an expression of their denying Christ's lordship, a matter that thrusts them into bondage, and they're rejecting the um, identity that Peter and other true believers held fast to, namely being slaves of Christ. They, they would have no part in that. You remember, again, early in chapter 2, that they've denied the master who bought them. They've become slaves to their own profane corruption. I'm not going to be a slave of Christ, they would argue. And so what is the result? They're slaves of that which they're, uh, they have been overcome by, namely the, the perversity and, and carnality of their own sins. They've become slaves to their own profane corruptions. But their proximity, though, and expressed association with Christ, along with the clear knowledge and benefits that have been provided to them, will ultimately prove to further condemn them now, uh, making them all the worse for it. And so having opportunity, having an understanding, having, uh, having enjoyed some of the sweet blessings of proximity to Christ and his people will only compound their judgment, the the, prof the profundity of their more complete rejection and the profundity of the damage that they would seek to do to others as well. They will be all the worse for it. So as we stated there, just like Judas, and that was a point of relation that we had, but Peter also provided us one earlier in chapter 2 because Peter says, you know what, they're also like Balaam. They're just like Balaam. Um, again, a man who in some measure identified with Yahweh. I mean, it's puzzling when you look at his account in Numbers and Balak goes to hire him and he says, let me consult Yahweh. It's puzzling, that point of relation or that apparent point of relation. So he calls out to Yahweh for counsel and direction and he was given a clear command and yet he left the right way. Well, that sounds a lot like the apostate false teacher as such is their course. So an identification with Christ, a clear command, um, namely, through the apostolic word, the New Testament scriptures, as I believe is made plain in um, 2 Peter chapter 3, the same language there with the, the command they've rejected, and a leaving, a forsaking of the right way. So they've acted just like Balaam, a proximity, an identification, a, a rejection of the command, 
and a leaving, a forsaking of the right way. And then we have um, just the matter that, you know, these things can be really hard still to sort out. It's complicated. Um, any, anytime you have relationships and anytime you have proximity, anytime you have people deceiving with words, it does become complicated. But ultimately, it's not too hard. It's not too hard. And Peter makes that clear to us in his final two-part proverb describing the false teacher. So I think if we understand this, we'll understand that while there are complexities of relationship and language and the nature of deception and the nature of what they do and have not done, we really can make it very simple in this way. Peter says they're like a dog returning to their vomit and like a pig returning to the mire. And what he's communicating in that is that there was never any true change in them. Because if there was genuine change, then wow, then we have a lot to wrestle with to understanding the apostasy of the false teacher. But if there really was not any genuine and true change, then we can understand that quite more easily. Because we recognize that it was all deception. It was all uh, a fraudulent conduct. Just as a dog and its base um, animal-like conduct does the most disgusting of things. It vomits things that are its body's rejected and then uh, returns to it and laps it back up. The pig, it might be washed and cleansed and, and made to look nice, and it, it just rushes back to the mire because that is what the dog is and that is what the pig is. They haven't changed because, again, um, there's been no transformative work. There's no new creation, and such is the nature of the false teacher. They, there's no been transformation. There's no been true redemption in Christ. They are who they were and continue to be so. It's just a fraudulent front to do harm. And for this, they will be judged severely. So there's nothing that was undone that was ever done in them to begin with. Um, so, um, but again, it makes it hard because in some circumstances, they were part of and identified with the church. And uh, that can be quite disert, uh, dis disconcerting to us. And to that end, even though we can understand them, we can understand them as we look back and say, ah, oh, you peel it back, it's who they are. Oh, why are they the way they are? Because there's no transformation of heart, no change. But it's still, uh, the proximity, the language, the experience, it can be very, very challenging. And we might be left to wonder what to do. What do we do? We want to be kept. We want to be faithful. What do we do? Well, Peter's made it uh, very clear for us um, that we're to remain steadfast. You know, that's why he's writing. I've write, I've, it says twice in the letter, at least twice, I've written to remind you. I've written to remind you. I want you to hold the line. I want you to stay steadfast. I want you to know. I want you to grow. I want you to stay. And how can we do that? Well, I would say that it's something that we've looked at a number of times, but I want to remind you. Remember, that's the pattern of Peter here, to stir you up by way of reminder. And so what's something we can do? What's something we can do to know that we'll stay steadfast? We can know that we're going to remain faithful. We can have gospel assurance to know for certain that we will not stumble and that our entrance into the kingdom is sure. Well, Peter says, by doing this, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly love, and in your brotherly love, agape love. For if these things are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, 
having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So while the Lord does the keeping, he keeps his own. We still have work to do, and we want to be found faithful accordingly. And part of that faithfulness is knowing, understanding, put it to action. And what's an expression of action that we can take? Well, supplying our faith with these things. And an outworking of that is in praying. And so we're going to look at just a few ways we can pray. And you might think if you've been following along with our um, messenger views from week to week, that this looks really familiar. It's because as I was considering how would I direct you to pray through these things, I've looked at the prior list and I think that a duplication is in order here. We haven't changed major subjects or thematic elements as we've worked through much of chapter 2, at least not this second portion as it were. And so I want to remind and encourage you. Again, this is a good precedent with Peter to remind and affirm things that you already know because it's not that we've exhausted um, the exercising of our praying in these areas. So again, I want to encourage you to pray in a like way that we've already discussed and to continue in this. So first, I'd say pray that the Lord will mercifully protect his church. The assault and the damage and the impact of the false teacher is of no small regard. It is severe and it, it hurts reputations. It, it makes shipwrecks of people's faith. Um, again, as we mentioned uh, today that we haven't, I don't think, explored uh, previously necessarily was the weak and I regret that I said carnal believer. I don't, I don't think that's a good way to express it, but um, an immature believer, one that's um, growing in grace, but not quite at the pace they ought to, uh, out of dis a terrible background and deficient discipleship, it's going to be hard. And some of them get swept in, uh, swept up under these, uh, the impact of these false teachers, even perhaps churches where they lead. Um, and so we want to pray that the Lord would uh, mature them and, and Rescue them, get them out, keep them. Um, and he will. He will keep anybody who's genuinely in Christ. And he will mature and he will deliver them. But it can be a really rough road of uh, years of heartache where it should be years of growth and years of grace and years of joy and years of progress. So pray the Lord to protect his church. Uh, again, those who are new to the faith, um, those who have come out of a particularly hard and carnal context, not to get swept up in deception and, and dangerous things. But even the uh, mature and faithful church, the the impact of the false teacher is some, not something that we can just say, well, we're immune to it. Um, they're skilled. What did Paul tell the Ephesian elders? That they'll come in amongst you and they will devour. And so we need to pray the Lord keep his church. Second, pray that we would not become vulnerable to the impact of false teachers by giving way to and making excuses for our weaknesses and need for maturity and growth. You know, that's a really easy back door to say that, I know I should supply my faith with these things, but goodness, that list is a little exhaustive and it's a little challenging and I have a lot of other things to do. And even joining the body for you know, weekly expressions of fellowship and worship, you know, it's just not something things come up and, and they do sometimes illnesses and uh, travel and like matters, but, but we don't want to make excuses. We don't want to make excuses for any expression of weakness, um, any expression of giving way to sin. Uh, it puts us in bad company, makes us vulnerable, doesn't honor the Lord. Third, pray for vigilant lives of purity and holiness, reflecting the work that Christ will accomplish in the full and final purification of his bride. 
We want to look like that which we are going to fully be. We're commanded to lives of holiness and lives of faithfulness. And that is an insulating thing. Uh, we want to make ourselves an unattractive target to um, both the false teacher and those who would malign our obedience. Fourth, pray that we would live with a view to God's righteous judgment. We've talked about how the Lord keeps his own, and he also keeps those for destruction who are um, the, the unbelieving apostate false teachers. That's It's a good thing to have these things in mind. And we were reminded in 1 Peter that judgment begins with the household of God. And if it begins with us, well, what's to come of those who are outside? Uh, it's a sobering thing. Uh, 1 Peter also mentions that if we... Um, uh, call, uh, call his father, he who righteously judges all men. Boy, it's a sobering thing. Let us live our lives accordingly. For uh, Second Peter chapter 3, we'll speak to this again as well. And then fifth, pray that we would finish our races well, not forsaking the right way or pursuing unrighteous wages. Um, what does the false teacher do? We saw it in the last section last week. We saw it this week. They forsake in the right way. Uh, that's a that's a horrible indictment, and we need to pray that we all would finish our race as well, um, that we would remain on the right way, that we'd remain on the righteous path. Okay, so I hope that's helpful. We've now finished Second Peter chapter two. It was a challenging chapter, and uh, there's more challenges yet ahead with Second Peter chapter three. But I think it was a good thing to work through, to wrestle through. Um, it's not necessarily my uh, favorite areas of examination. I think it's a, a burdensome area of study, but um, it's good to be mindful of how we um, are mindful of those who would threaten Christ's church, mindful of those who would do so under such wicked, profane expressions of deception, and, and mindful to, to be rejoicing. The Lord will keep his own, um, but uh, we have work to do. So may the Lord find us all faithful. Grace and peace to you all.